Jesus, come to us in mercy and grace to make himself known to sinful, unbelieving, doubting people. Make himself known to them and give them life. To do that, we're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. And the main truth we want to take away from this passage is that true life is only in the one who rose back to life. True life is only in the one who rose back to life. We're going to begin in verse 24. If you're new to the Bible or less familiar with it, the chapter numbers are the numbers of big bold prints in your Bible, and the verse numbers look like footnotes there. They're smaller print. So chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. With each paragraph, it's as if the Apostle John pans the camera to focus on one character to another. So we'll break up our time like this. We'll begin with Thomas's profile in verses 24 to 26. Then we'll shift to Jesus' profile, and then finally to your profile, our profile as a whole. Now, in each character profile, we will trace what happened in the story and what we learned from it, either what we learn about the character or what we learn from the character I talked about there. So let's begin with Thomas's profile and notice first just what happened in the story. Our scene opens likely the day after Resurrection Sunday, so after the disciples found Jesus' empty tomb with his grave clothes, John chapter 20, verse 19, reports that Jesus appeared to his disciples on the evening of the day he rose from the dead. But it says Thomas wasn't there. Now what do we know about Thomas? Thomas has made some very brief appearances in John's gospel so far. Many of us probably know him as Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas may be too restrictive of a label. Commentators prefer pessimistic but loyal Thomas. <laughs> John chapter 11 recounts when Jesus rose his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, it wasn't a simple decision to travel to Bethany, the small village outside of Jerusalem where Lazarus was buried. In fact, the end of John chapter 10 talks about the last time Jesus was in this area of Jerusalem People tried to stone him to death. 
So you can imagine when he tells his disciples, hey, guys, this is the plan. We're going to go back to that area where people tried to stone me. Everybody is kind of like uneasy, very hesitant. But Thomas breaks the tension and says what everybody's thinking. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Pessimistic but loyal. (laughs) This is who we're dealing with. In verse 24, John calls Thomas, notice there, one of the twelve who's called the twin. These details remind us that Thomas has been in close proximity with Jesus for over three years now. Just think about all that Thomas would have saw. He would have saw Jesus cast out the legion of demons and the man from Galilee of the Gentiles when Jesus cast the demons into pigs and they ran out into the water. He would have saw Jesus feed the 5,000 on the side of a hill. He would have saw Jesus walk on the water and Thomas has been in close proximity with Jesus for over three years. These details here in verse 24 also remind us about the author of this passage, John. John did not have some secondhand knowledge of Thomas. No, John knew him personally. He had direct knowledge of Thomas. He was with him all the time. So John tells us that Thomas wasn't there on the night when Jesus appeared to the rest of his disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder why. Thomas, what was so important that you were doing? Were you working overtime? Was Sunday night football on? (laughs) Now, John doesn't share this detail. And we shouldn't read too much into the story. But if Thomas's stubborn and doubting statement is any indication, he may have avoided this initial gathering intentionally. Who knows? Thomas was there, maybe he would have believed right off the bat. But either way, we can see Jesus used Thomas's unfortunate absence for good, didn't he? He always has a plan. Jesus would heal Thomas's unbelief. Jesus would decidedly prove his resurrection. And Jesus would elicit an important declaration about his true nature as God incarnate. Jesus was up to something here, even in something unfortunate. Now, back to what happened at this point in the story. We're around verse 25. Now, we can picture the other disciples saying at this point, you know, Thomas wasn't here the first time. Ah, to heck with him. He deserted us. You know, I knew this whole time he was a phony. That's not what happened. Verse 25 says that the other disciples sought out Thomas. They were convinced that Jesus was alive. They cared for their friend. This is a good combination. They were convinced that Jesus was alive and they cared about their friend. How many of us came to Christ as a result of friends who were convinced that Jesus died and rose again and those same friends who loved us? This is Ian Hutchison's story. Hutchison is a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. Probably would be the smartest person in this room, I would wager. (laughs) Hutchison talks about his academic pursuits at Cambridge and how he encountered Cambridge's deeply Christian heritage. Now, he shared his colleagues' criticisms of Christianity that Christianity, Christianity was irrelevant, it was outdated. But on the other side of him coming to Christ, Hutchison admits that, quote, 
he didn't spend too much time thinking about whether Christianity was actually true. Because I already knew that it was personally inconvenient. I did not want it much to be true. I did not want a Lord. I wanted to be my own Lord. I bring up Hutchison because it was Christian friends who brought him to take Christianity seriously for the first time. He says this, two of my closest friends in college were serious Christians. And I found their lives and their friendships attractive. They did have some peculiarities that reflected Christian constraints on freedoms. They went to church on Sundays. And sometimes they would cut short evenings in the pub by refusing to have more than one or two beers. Through them, though, I realized that Christianity is not all about what you have to give up. And the things that you do give up, like sleeping in on a Sunday or blood alcohol levels well above the legal driving limit are not actually all that worthwhile. The point is, we have people like Thomas and people like Ian in our lives. And they need these people need us to be their friends who are convinced that Jesus died and rose again. Now, at this point in the story, the disciples' initial effort to persuade Thomas landed flat. Now, think about it. These were the guys who scattered when Jesus was arrested and crucified. I mean, Peter, Jesus' most faithfully militant even follower, denied Jesus vehemently three times. But now, in a matter of just a weekend, all these guys completely changed their tune were now convinced Jesus was alive. But not even his friend's change would persuade Thomas. No. Thomas demanded to see and touch Jesus' wounds. He said without that, he would never believe. So this demand from Thomas tells us that Thomas was convinced Jesus really was dead. There was no hint that Thomas suspected that maybe Jesus was taken off the cross early or that there was some kind of substitute Jesus. Thomas's demand to see and touch Jesus tells us that the only kind of resurrection that would satisfy him was a physical one. Not some vaguely spiritual idea that Jesus' spirit lives on in his disciples and all who follow him. Not even that Jesus was now some friendly ghost like Casper who was there to encourage the disciples. This is the story. This is what happened. But what do we learn from it? Well, we can learn at least three things from Thomas. First, we learn unbelief is often more personal than we realize. Unbelief is often more personal than we realize. Again, we want to take care of how much we read into the story. But a stubborn statement like, I will never believe. That sounds like it comes from somebody who has more than an intellectual dilemma. That sounds like it comes from somebody who has personal pain. Perhaps a statement comes from someone whose world has just been rocked. I mean, maybe Thomas thought, you know, I always kind of suspected that all this Jesus stuff wouldn't pan out. And now my suspicions are confirmed. And there goes three and a half years of my life that I will 
like Thomas's story or Ian Hutchison's story. Intellectual questions are worth dealing with, but we often use them as smoke screens to mask our anger, our pain, and our pride. So when somebody raises questions about the problem of evil or Christianity's moral standards, there's usually a story behind that question, more than just an intellectual dilemma. And we do well to try to uncover what led them to ask that. Unbelief is often more personal than we realize. Second, from Thomas's profile, we learn about the wrong starting place with Christ. The wrong starting place with Christ. We do not end up in a good place when we start by making demands of God. Instead, we must start with what God has given to us. Perhaps this could have been a more honest, more humble approach from Thomas. Perhaps Thomas could have said something like this. You know, I've seen Jesus up close and personal. I saw him give sight to the blind. I saw him give life to the dead, hearing to the deaf. I even heard Jesus predict that he would be killed and then rise again three days later. Now listen, I have questions, and I'm going to investigate those questions, but I don't want to dismiss what I've known about Jesus. Starting with what God has given us, instead of starting with our demands, does not mean that we avoid asking questions. But neither does it mean that we have to have answers to every question in order to believe. Third thing we learn from Thomas, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. The first part of verse 26 intrigues me. It says, eight days later, the disciples are back together again, and Thomas is with them. What happened during those eight days? You know, if you're in the middle of a crisis, eight days can feel like an eternity. Did the disciples continue to pursue Thomas, hound him down, like, Thomas, you've got to hear us out? I'm telling you this is the case. Please give this a chance. And maybe, just maybe, during these eight days, Thomas began to walk back his stubbornness. Maybe, during these eight days, Thomas began to doubt his doubts. And so Thomas joined his friends who were convinced that Jesus was alive. Now listen, if you are not fully on board with Jesus, and you're here, oh, I want to commend you. Thank you for being here. I want to say that it is okay to have doubts, but please investigate them. And please start with the evidence that Jesus has given. And I want you to consider that you have a room full of people who are convinced that Jesus died and rose again, just like Thomas did. Now, Next, John slowly pans the camera to focus on Jesus. So here we see Jesus' profile. The second half of verse 26 to verse 29. We're just going to start again with what happened. Now, Jesus quite literally pops up onto the scene in the second half of verse 26. Now, evidently, the disciples still feared the Jewish and Roman authorities for being followers of Jesus, so they locked the door behind them. And again, Jesus just popped into the room. It's tough to understand fully how Jesus got into the room. 
Now, this story and the Apostle John and other places are adamant. Jesus physically rose from the dead. He has a body. Now, it could be that there is just something different about Jesus' physical resurrected body. And so, he passed through the doors or the walls just like he passed through his grave clothes. Or it could be like Peter did in Acts chapter 12. That's the door, that the, the locks of the door just opened and then it made space for Jesus to physically walk in. John doesn't feel it important to disclose this detail. All he says is that Jesus just popped into the room. And if somebody just popped into the middle of the room right now, we would probably be afraid. <laughs> and so Jesus says the same statement that he did before. He says, peace be with you. And it might just seem like a throwaway comment, but Jesus uses this word all the time. And, and even the apostles picked it up after him. We see the apostle Paul say grace and peace over and over again. And I and shalom was a, a common Jewish greeting back then, as it is now. But Jesus' repeated use of it emphasizes that he has accomplished peace between God and sinners on his cross. So after this initial greeting, we see Jesus targets Thomas, hones in right on him. You wonder if, if there was a glance first right at Thomas, and Thomas was kind of just struck. It's like, oh no, he knows. Jesus knew Thomas's heart. And it's like Jesus heard exactly what Thomas said. So he invited Thomas to make good on his less than reasonable request. But more than that, he invited Thomas to believe. Now, it's interesting. John doesn't actually say whether or not Thomas touched Jesus. But John does say that Thomas believed. And he uttered an astounding statement. see how Jesus then clarified what it takes to believe in him. That is what happened in this story. Now, there's plenty of overlap between what happened in verses 26 to 29 and what we learn from these verses also. But from this profile of Jesus, I think we can learn at least four things either about him or from him. First, we learn about the nature and centrality of the resurrection. The nature and centrality resurrection. This passage indicates that there was something unique about Jesus' resurrected body, but Jesus still has a body. He continues to bear the wounds he suffered at the crucifixion to show that this is the same Jesus who was nailed to a cross, not a different one. Now, as we have observed already, the only kind of resurrection that would satisfy Thomas was a physical and everything rises and falls based on this point. If Jesus physically got up from the dead, Thomas was in. If he didn't, Thomas was out. And maybe Thomas was onto something there. Without a physical resurrection, Jesus did not conquer sin and death. Rather, sin and death would have conquered him. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Everything rises and falls, falls on this. And each of us has to deal with it. Either this happened or it didn't. Either Jesus got up from the dead or he is still dead. Be honest, friends, we can't all be right. Our faith hinges on 
not whether a certain set of life principles works, but whether or not Jesus died and rose again physically from the grave in real history. Second thing we learn. We learn about Jesus' divine nature from this prologue. We've covered already that Jesus physically rose from the dead and therefore is truly human. But Thomas's confession of my Lord and my God reveals the important truth that Jesus is not just human, he is also divine. Now, some attempt to soften Thomas's statement here. They say something to the effect that Lord is simply a title of respect, and my God is equivalent to a profanity you utter when you are shocked. But Lord is a title, this isn't Lord, all caps, Yahweh, but Lord is a title God regularly used of himself in the Old Testament especially when we read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Further, as Don Carson points out, a devout first century Jew like Thomas would never use God's name so flippantly like this. But just consider common sense. You don't need to know either any of that stuff. Thomas is speaking directly to Jesus. What else could he mean? Thomas realized that if Jesus did rise up from the dead, then he must Third thing we learn, we learn about Jesus' heart in his prologue. Jesus' heart. Jesus displayed his mercy and care to Thomas. He knew exactly what Thomas needed. Jesus does not shrink back from questions. He is not afraid from them. He does not shrink back from doubts. He does not even shrink back from stubbornness. When we say, thank God, he has a special heart for set their face toward him. And notice that in an instant, Thomas's heart of stone became a heart of flesh. Let this encounter encourage us about the people in our lives who we long to know Jesus, but who are stubborn like the rest of us. Let this encounter encourage us weak sheep who love Jesus, but who have regular struggles and questions. Let this encounter encourage us to have the same heart as Christ. Samuel Ngewa uh, encourages the church to this end. He says that Thomases in the church long for a lowly shepherd to lead them step by step to see Jesus as their living Savior and Lord. In her devotional on doubt, Elise Fitzpatrick, Paul referenced this book earlier. It is in our resource center. Uh, she points doubters to Christ's heart toward Thomas. She puts it beautifully. She says this. She says, Thomas was a confident, courageous disciple. He was willing to die with the Lord. He wasn't bashful about asking for clarification when he didn't understand what Jesus said. But something happened with Thomas. Jesus died. And then Thomas wasn't so sure. Perhaps you have gone through something similar. Perhaps something or someone has died. Perhaps everything you have worked for, all your prayers, seem unanswered. Do not despair. Ask Jesus now for the help that you need, and he will give it. He will, he will enable you to say, my Lord and my God, again. Fourth thing we learn from Jesus. 
Jesus in verses 26 to 29. We learn about the nature of true faith. The nature of true faith. Jesus was not Darth Vader to Thomas. We should not hear Jesus saying, I find your lack of faith disturbing. (laughs) Thomas genuinely believed, but that doesn't mean Thomas was perfect in the situation either. Thomas could have responded better to his friend's insistence that they saw Jesus alive. Thomas could have trusted Jesus' word and believed Jesus' promises that he would rise again. But in verse 29, Jesus expressed that not everybody would get to see what Thomas saw. that's okay. Because seeing is not believing. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 1 Peter 1 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with Listen, Jesus has not left himself without a witness or evidence as to who he is or what he has done. But things remain that we don't see. And things remain that we don't completely understand. What we're saying is that these things that remain don't have to keep us from trusting in Jesus or loving him. I love the simple refrain from a song called Too Good by a Christian artist named Jess Ray. Uh, She says, uh, he may be too good to be understood, but he's not too good. True faith is not seeing, but believing. And from this passage, we see another thing about the nature of true faith. That true faith is personal. True faith is personal. Now, let me clarify. It's not personal in that we get to keep it to ourselves. And it's not personal in that uh, it could be true for you, but it's not true for me. No. It's personal in that each one of us has to interact with it. It's personal in that our faith has to be our own, not someone else's. Did you catch Thomas's pronouns in his statement? He said, my Lord, my God. Reminds me of the time when Jesus asked his disciples what people were saying about him. And they spewed out responses like a modern day Gallup poll. These people say this, these people say that, these people say that. And then Jesus gets a little them, but who do you say that I am? Maybe this is a similar case. Maybe we can modernize it a little bit. Maybe our responses like the disciples would be, you know, I grew up, my grandma took me to church every single Sunday. She's such, she was so devoted. She made sure I heard all the stories. She made sure I was confirmed and baptized. She's great. Thank God for your grandma. But who do you say Jesus is? Maybe a modern day way to put it is like, I've just seen Christian hypocrite after Christian hypocrite. I've seen pastor after pastor fall. I've seen people leave the faith over and over again. We don't want to dismiss that, and it's a tragedy. But the question remains, who do you say Jesus is? Your faith has to be your own, not someone else's. It's personal. In verses 30 to 31, John will ask a similar question. So here we see your problem. John, the cameraman, began our scene with a close-up of Thomas. He panned to focus on Jesus, who popped up on the scene. But now he does something unexpected. He breaks the fourth wall. In verse 31, 
he turns the camera away from the set to reveal the live studio audience. So let's begin with what this says. Verse 30 says that John and the disciples saw Jesus, what Jesus did, and that John hasn't even shared the half of it. Let's just take this in. Consider what we have in this book, in the Gospel of John in particular. Sorry about that. This book is utterly unique. It is an eyewitness account, and this eyewitness account has been preserved for thousands of years. Unlike any other ancient document, let alone any other ancient religious foundational document. Now, many of you may have heard stuff like this before, maybe just give you a taste of it. Most ancient documents have between 10 and 20 copies, the first of which normally didn't come hundreds of years after the original. That is not the case with the New Testament. The New Testament stands alone, unique. And we have over 5,000, almost 6,000, Greek New Testament manuscripts still in existence, not to mention translations into other languages, not to mention quotes of the New Testament from sermons, tracts, and books from other ancient writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, these were written soon after the events they describe, and they gained wide recognition in the church soon after they were written. All this is to stress what John said in verse 30. We have eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and these accounts have been preserved. And consider the content of this testimony. Verse 30, John talked about the signs that Jesus did in front of the disciples. Jesus did all this in front of a group that you and I would not handpick if we were trying to build some brand or some Jesus did all this in front of a group of men who occupied a world that had no expectations of a Messiah that would be a man of sorrows, that would die and not conquer. Jesus' signs were not done in front of never-questioning stalwart followers, but in front of bumbling and fleeing ones. So there must have been something to all this if the men who scattered at the cross would now be willing to die for believing the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. In short, what verse 30 says is that you may not have Jesus in the flesh, but you have what you need to believe. And that's exactly what verse 31 wants for us. John wants his readers to believe. This is not the squishy George Michael way of faith, faith, John wants his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Friend, is that who you say Jesus is? Will you join Thomas and say to Jesus, my Lord and my God? If you haven't, if you have more questions, would you please stay and reach out? This is more important than your plans for Easter lunch. Verse 31 does not simply want to amass a crowd. Verse 31 does not even want to give people better morals. It wants to give us life. Brothers and sisters, those who have life in Jesus' name 
Are we convinced of this to the point that we want the same life for others? And in all the questions you would ask that would keep you dancing around Jesus instead of coming to him, maybe add this question too. Where is life? Where is life? Anything else you give yourself to will eventually demand your life from you. Instead, see the one who bears your wounds that display he gave his life for us to bear the punishments that we deserve and that he rose again and gives life thank you for your care and your grace to do what we did not expect you to do, to do what we did not even want you to do. And we worship you